Praise the Lord. Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see you all this morning. If we could turn up the house lights in here, it'd help. I'd like to see your faces while I preach to you this morning. So that'd be, there we go. It's good to see you guys this morning. So find James chapter 1 this morning. James chapter 1. We've been on a journey through God's Word the past three years. We spent a year in the Gospel of John looking at who Jesus is and what, who Christ is and what it means to follow Him and how His grace changes us. We then took a year and worked through Paul's letter to the people in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, to see how if we believe in Christ, what that does about giving us a new identity in Him and how understanding who Christ is and who we are in Christ, what we sang earlier, who you say I am, how that changes our lives. And we spent six months in the Psalms looking at both the greatness of God and the goodness of God and living in light of both the greatness and goodness of God, how that changes how we approach life, how we praise God, how we handle trials, how we seek forgiveness, and so much more. So where do we go next? Well, we go to what's been called the most practical book of the Bible, and that's the book of James. James is five short chapters, but with 54 commands for our life in these five short chapters. James drives us to examine our lives, and it can be really painful at times. James makes us look at how we view trials, how we treat the poor, how we speak, and so much more about our lives. But as he does that, James also confronts us with a very painful reality. And the reality is that we cannot obey these commands on our own. James can almost drive us crazy. In the first chapter, he tells us that we're to control our speech. Then in chapter 3, he tells us that no one can control his speech. And so each week as we see these command after command that James gives to us, as God gives us through James, it reminds us that we can't do these on our own. But that gap, if you will, between what we're supposed to do and what we can do is not meant to drive us to despair. It's to drive us to seek the grace of God in our lives, to find help from God to do what we in our own flesh cannot do. And we'll see that week after week after week, going back to the grace of God. Now, before we get into the content of the book, we want to start today with just the first verse of James. Like Drew mentioned earlier, we're going to do 19 words of God's Word this morning for our sermon today. But it's so easy when you come to a book of the Bible to skip over the greeting. You see a bunch of names, it's easy to pass right over. But in the opening greeting of James, like any of these books, there's so much meaning in these first words. And these first words help us understand the whole letter because it helps us understand who James is and what, who he's writing to and what he's trying to accomplish. But I don't want you to miss it this morning. In these opening 19 words, this introduction, there's a very practical challenge for you and me today as well. So we want to look both at historically what, who James is and what he's doing and also how this should impact our lives today. So as we come to James chapter 1, verse 1, can I ask you to stand, please, in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. James chapter 1, verse 1. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion Greetings. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you've given us access to it. God, that you've revealed yourself to us, that you've not hidden yourself from us. And God, we thank you this morning as we start a new journey over these next nine months or so going through James. God, that your word would come alive to us. God, I pray for myself and these precious brothers and sisters that, God, as we look at your word and we look at particularly this book, that you will just, through your Holy Spirit at work, opening your word to us, God, that you would drive us to look into our lives you would just reveal to us clearly what your will is for each of us who name the name of Christ. God, that in your kindness to us, you would show us areas where we're falling short of your will. But God, that you would also give us much grace, Father, as we see these areas to not just try harder, but Lord, to look to you to find the grace, the strength, the help we need to do what we can never do on our own. 
So, Lord, as we go through this very practical book in these months to come, God, would you increase our view of your bigness, give us a greater view of your holiness, give us a greater view of our own desperation and need, and a much greater view of your grace. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So here's what I want you to see this morning in James' letter from these first, this first verse is simply this. James wrote to encourage believers to live out their faith by relying on God's grace. If you want an introduction to the whole study, introduction to the book, what we get from verse 1 is simply this. That James wrote to encourage believers to live out their faith by relying on God's grace. James is writing to Christians, to people who name the name of Christ then and now. And he has a particular mission in view of this book, and he wants people to live out what they claim to believe. If you say you're a follower of Christ, he said your life should show it. You should be able to walk out what God is telling you to do. He wants to help us apply our faith and what we believe into our daily situations. But like I mentioned, to not do so in our own strength. Not with just white-knuckle determination, not just trying harder, but looking to God's grace to enable us to do what God has called us to do. James writes to encourage believers to live out their faith by relying on God's grace. Now, in that, there's five key insights to help us understand the book that we're going to unpack this morning from that. First of all, who is the author? James. Who is his audience? We're going to talk about which believers he has in view. What is his burden for helping them live out their faith? What is the hope they can do that? That's the grace of God and something significant about this writing. So we'll look at the author, the audience, his burden, the hope he has, and something about his writing. And so we want to take it in that order to give us a context for all that's to come in the months to come. So let's start with the author here, of who we're, who's writing to them and to us. This letter begins the way letters began at the time. Unlike today, if you write a letter, which we don't do much of anymore in our world of technology, but if you write a letter, you sign your name at the end. At the time that James was writing this in the New Testament times, you put your name at the beginning, not at the end. So you sign your name first and then your content follows. That's exactly what James does here. Notice the very first word of verse 1. He identifies himself, James. Now, which James are we talking about? There's several different James in the New Testament. But based on the date of this book, based on the writing style, based on the testimony of the early church and church historians, this is James, the brother of Jesus. Yes, Jesus had siblings, brothers and sisters. And this is James, the brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus had been born. We actually see him named as a brother of Jesus in Mark chapter 6. Verse 3, this is a crowd of people who are skeptical of Jesus and not really excited about him. And look at how they, how they identify who Jesus is. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of who? Of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So Jesus has brothers and sisters born to Mary and Joseph, and one of them is James, who wrote this particular book here. Now, who is this James who's the brother of Jesus? Well, several things about him. That means he grew up at home with Jesus as his older brother. That means he saw Jesus perfectly obey his mom and dad his whole life. He saw Jesus never talk back to his mom and dad once. He saw Jesus perfectly walk in holiness his whole childhood because Jesus never sinned. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your big brother? That is the author of this book right here. No wonder he's concerned about practical holiness. He watched his big brother outdo him in everything his whole life perfectly walking with the Lord as he watched Jesus do all that. But even though he saw Jesus perfectly obey his whole life, he did not believe that his brother was the Christ until much later in life. John chapter 7 verse 5 tells us this. In John 7 5, it's told very clearly, for not even his brothers believed in him. So even though he saw his brother perfectly obey the law, every jot and tittle of the law his whole life, James did not have a correct understanding of the Messiah 
did not realize that Jesus was the Messiah, that his older brother was the one who had been prophesied about. And so though he spent much of his life, much of Jesus' earthly ministry, refusing to believe that his brother was in fact God, his brother was in fact the Messiah, something did change. He eventually, later in life, did believe, and it appears to be after the resurrection. How do we know so? Because Jesus specifically appeared to him in a post-resurrection appearance. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses 3 to 7. You hear me quote 1 Corinthians 15 a lot, but I want to go a little bit further in it than I normally do. Look at what Paul says to people in Corinth. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still asleep, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now verse 7. Then he appeared to who? James, then to all the apostles. Sometime post-resurrection, Jesus made a specific post-resurrection appearance to his younger brother and showed him who he was. And don't you wish you could have been there for that conversation? There's certain things that I wish Scripture told us, but God in his sovereignty has not given it to us. I would love to have known what Jesus said to his younger brother in that encounter right there that transformed him. Whatever it was that Jesus said to James, it changed him, it transformed him. And he began to, at that point, associate with the disciples. Acts chapter 1, verse 10 through 13 here. In Acts 1, you have Jesus ascending back into heaven. So while they, the disciples, were gazing into heaven, as he, Jesus, went back up, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said to the men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now look at verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and who? And James. And then it goes on with more names. But James is now post-resurrection. Once he sees Christ, resurrection body, back from the dead, when he sees him, It changes him, and he now begins to associate with his disciples. No longer is he the skeptic on the outside with his other brothers and sisters doubtful of Jesus. He's now in associating with the early followers of Christ, and it changes him. And his transformation is so drastic from unbelief to belief that he actually becomes the key leader of the early church in Jerusalem. Like, he goes from just the skeptical younger brother to becoming the key leader, like the main guy in charge of the early Jerusalem church. How do we know that? Well, when groups were described at the time, the key leader was highlighted. They would mention usually the leader's name, and then historically they would talk about greet everyone, but also greet, and they'd usually name the leader. That was the historical way of greeting people or making notes at the time about a group. Well, James is described in that way. Acts chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. You have the account where Peter has been in prison. He's miraculously released from prison. So he goes to the assembly of the people, of the early believers at the house to tell them what's going on. But Peter continued knocking, and when they, when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. They think he's in prison. So what happens? But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he, Peter, described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to who? To James and to the brothers. James is mentioned by Peter as the person who needs to get this news that God has miraculously delivered him because James was the leader of the church. You see, the same thing happened when Paul reports back to the church what God has been doing among the Gentiles. Acts 21, verses 17 and 19 in this. When we, this is Paul and his travelers, had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to who? To James. And all the elders were present. Verse 19 follows, tells us, and after greeting them, he related one by one to James, the leader of the church, and to others with him, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. 
So it's no surprise when Paul is writing to the people in Galatia and Galatians, notice how he describes James, Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles. So here you have Paul saying that James is a pillar of the church. So when Peter gets out of prison, he says, go tell James. When Paul comes back, let's report to James. James is a pillar. They're describing him because he is the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. In fact, he's such an effective leader, he leads the early church through one of his early controversies. Yes, the enemy works today like he worked then, and he created division within the body. And there becomes a lot of confusion around A.D. 50 in the life of the church of whether Gentile converts would have to be circumcised like the Jews were done. Would the Gentiles have to meet the outward requirements of the Jewish law? And the church was about to split, was getting fragmented over this. So what did the church do? They called a council together to resolve this difference, to seek the mind of God. And guess who presides over the council? James is the one who presides over it. If you want to read it later, you can read it in Acts chapter 15. We're not going to read all of Acts 15 today, but I want you to see a few things that happen in Acts 15 of James's leadership of the church. First of all, Acts chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. And all the assembly fell silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done among them um, through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. So there's a controversy in the church. A report is given of what God has been doing among the Gentiles. James hears it all, and the room goes silent. Everyone looks to James, and he stands up and says, Listen to me. And the church listens to him. He, in the verses that follow, gives a summary of what's been reported to him. And now look at verse 19. Therefore, my judgment. He is now pronouncing what the church should do in light of all they heard is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He's saying, basically, I've heard all of this. My verdict as the leader of the church here is that we should not make the Gentiles be circumcised. They should not have to go through all the Jewish ceremonial laws. But notice this, verse 20. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So the leader of the church speaks up and says, okay, this is what the Lord's will is. We should not trouble the Gentiles with these external things, but we need to pursue them and walking in holiness. Again, the practical nature of the book of James, we'll see he was burdened for people abstaining from sexual immorality, from things polluted by idols. He wanted people to follow God and live out what they believed. And the church listened to him in verse 25, a few verses later. It has seemed good to us having come to, notice this, one accord. God worked through James as the faithful leader of the New Testament church. And when the church was splitting, he brought them together to one accord. And in the midst of all this, he eventually became regarded as an apostle. Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, you see the status he achieved in all this. He said, but I saw none of the other apostles except who? Except James. So he's now, in Paul's mind, viewed as being among the apostles. And friends, beyond that very public ministry of influence, his private life backed him up. We know from church historians that his nickname was James the Just. Because he was a man who loved God and lived for God in his private life that matched up with his public life. He was a man who was committed to hours every day of prayer. That, friends, is the author of the letter that we're reading over these next several months. But I want you to notice something here. If you had the family tree of James, and if you had the influence James had, how would you introduce yourself to get people to listen to you? I think I might be pretty tempted to begin the letter with, this is James, the brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, the well-known peacemaker in the early church, the current leader of the Jerusalem church, and an apostle. Please listen to me. 
That's not what he does, though. Look back at verse 1. Look at how he describes himself. Again, thinking of who he is, James, uh, what's the next word he uses? A servant. Isn't that striking to you? That a man of such pedigree, if you will, his, his mother is Mary, the beloved Mary. He's the brother of Jesus. He's the peacemaker of the early church. He's a leader of the church. He's now an apostle. And the term he picks to describe himself is, I am a servant of God and of Christ. Now, our English doesn't do justice because the word that's translated servant here is the Greek word that's really translated slave, the bond servant. This guy who was a skeptic of his brother for so long now says, I am fully committed to him as my boss, my master, my Lord. I believe he is now, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just my Lord, but he's the Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer. And he was committing himself as a servant of God and of Christ. He wanted to do whatever God called him to do. Now, that commitment to Christ James now has a burden for the people of God to take care of them. So that's our author of our letter, James. He's writing to particular people, though. He's burdened for them. He follows Christ. And so who is our audience of our letter here? Go back to verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? He's using imagery. The 12 tribes was an image for the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Israel was made up of 12 tribes. From Jacob, who was renamed Israel, came 12 sons. Now, from the 12 sons came all the lineage of Israel. This is a common way to describe to the Jewish people. He says to the Jewish people in the dispersion. Now, what is a dispersion? Literally, it means to be scattered around the world. If you go back historically, in 722 B.C., Assyria, who was an enemy of Israel, attacked and took 10 of the tribes of Israel and moved them out from their land. They exported them, if you will, and took the people to another place. They were scattered, not by choice. In 586 B.C., Babylon, another enemy, comes and they take two of the other tribes of Israel away also. And so a 12 tribes in the dispersion meant the Jewish people who, not by their choice, have been forced out of their homeland around the world. Now, what's he doing with this? Because he's writing to Christians now, so why is he using this? Well, he's writing at time historically to Jewish Christians. He has a particular burden for this group of believers who come out of Jewish background, of people like him who are skeptics who are now believing in Christ as the Messiah. And so he's reminding them of their spiritual heritage. He's reminding them of, that they are under the Lord Jesus Christ, but they come from a Jewish descent. But the dispersion he's talking about now is something a little bit different because they're, sca- they're also scattered now, but in a new dispersion, not by choice. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 Stephen is stoned. You have the first martyr of the church. And when Stephen is stoned, persecution arises, and the early church has to scatter from Jerusalem. Acts eleven nineteen tells us, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. You had a scattering from Jerusalem because of the persecution. And this group that he's burdened about were most likely people who had been under his care. He was their pastor. And because of persecution, they got driven out all across the Mediterranean region. And he's concerned about them. He's worried about them. They're scattered now, starting over in house churches all over the region. And so he's burdened for them, so he writes to them. Friends, he knows their life is hard. These Jewish background Christians were rejected by other Jews because they now believed in Christ as the Messiah. So they were ostracized from the Jewish community. They were rejected by the Gentiles because the Gentiles and Jews have had a long hatred for each other. And so they were rejected by everyone. They were outcast. Most were poor. Most were struggling. Friends, that's a really sobering reminder for us because in our culture, people seem obsessed with the idea that God's main goal for our life is to give us an easy life. 
And here's a group of people who have been in Jerusalem who are Jewish converts. Their, their historical lineage has been the people of God, and they've embraced Christ as the Messiah. And God doesn't now give them an easy life because they've embraced Christ. Rather, they get driven for out, and they're struggling with oppression, with poverty, with being ostracized. God never promises, friends, that our lives will be easy. So James knows that, and it's hard for them, so he writes to them. But he's also writing to them because he knows they have a greater threat than the persecution. They have a greater danger than all the difficulties around them, and that's the danger of their own sin, the danger of their own heart. He knows that the greater threat to these Jewish background Christians is not the hostility of those in their neighborhoods. It's the sin of their own heart. And so he writes to them. We'll get to this in a few weeks, but James chapter 1, verse 14, if you want to glance ahead to see what his burden is. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Notice this, by his own desire. The desire when it is conceived, give birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. He knows the greater threat to them is not the hostility, but it's their own sin. And apart from the grace of God, change them will eventually lead to death for them. So he writes to them, burden for them to help them live out their faith even when life is hard. And he gives to them 54 direct commands, how they're to speak, how they're to pray, how they're to have unity, what they're to do with their finances, how to resist temptation. On and on he goes to help these believers live out what they claim to believe. He wrote to encourage them to live out their faith. You see, James has hope they can do that. And his hope is not that they're just going to have a New Year's resolution to make this happen. His hope is not they're going to just try harder. His hope is not in their self-effort. In fact, he makes very clear their self-effort will cause them to fall flat on their face. James chapter 3, verse 8, I alluded to this earlier. It says in James 3, 8, No human being can tame the tongue. It doesn't say you can do better with these speeches. It says no one can tackle this on you. No one can conquer. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So the hope is not in them. So what is James's hope? These people in a hostile world can actually live for God? His hope is the grace of God. The very grace of God that we've been talking about all along the way. And just to remind you, grace is God's unmerited kindness to us. It's God's kindness to us that we do not deserve. God giving us what we do not deserve. We've seen this in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 16. Probably one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. The same grace we talked about in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And James is going to pick up on that theme, and what I believe is the key verse of all of James is James chapter 4, verse 6. Why is he writing all these things? James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you want a key verse of James to meditate on and memorize while we go through the study, this is it, friends, James 4, 6. All these commands he gives are all pointing us back to our need for grace. So what is the hope when I can't control my tongue? God gives more grace. What's the hope when we're having trouble being generous to the poor around us? God gives more grace. What's the hope when we find ourselves arguing with our spouse or our kids or our friends? God gives more grace. What's our hope when we're not praying like we should? God gives more grace. What is our hope when we've lost confidence in God's power to move? God gives more grace. Everything we see in these 54 commands of James, I want you to hear it in light of this phrase, God gives more grace. All these commands we'll see, friends, are calls to humble ourselves, to not try in our own strength, not think we can do this on our own, but instead to cry out to the sovereign, all-powerful God who delights in giving grace, like we saw in Psalm 1. 
and say, God, I need grace. I cannot control my tongue, God. God, I cannot control my anger. God, I cannot be generous. God, give me grace. Give me strength. Change me so that I want to do what you say. Change me so that I find strength to do what you say. Give me boldness to step out in obedience. And friends, God loves to answer the prayers of his people when they say, God, give me grace for this. James wrote to encourage believers to live out their faith by relying on God's grace. There's one last thing significant about his writing before I turn to application today. Did you know that James's letter is the oldest book in the Old Testament? You know, when the New Testament and the Old Testament are put together, they weren't done chronologically. So James, what we have here is the oldest book in the New Testament. It's the very earliest writing to the Christian church. In fact, it is the earliest thing we can have in terms of instruction to the early church. It was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's written before Acts was recorded for us. It's written before any of Paul's writing. We get to hold in our hands and look at for the next nine months the earliest written instruction to New Testament churches at the time. And friends, this encouragement was relevant then, and it's relevant for us now. So what do we get out of this? This is not just a nice history lesson for us of who James is or who the early church was. Friends, I think there's a huge lesson for you and for me today in James chapter 1, verse 1. Go back to James 1 for us. James, a servant of God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James is modeling for us, friends, how we should feel about one another. James is modeling for us how we should be committed to helping one another. So I want to give you a second main idea today in light of what we just looked at. I want to twist some wording just a little bit for application word. This is the second thing I want you to see this morning. It's this. We need to intentionally encourage one another to live out our faith by relying on God's grace. Friends, we need to intentionally encourage one another to live out our faith by relying on God's grace. Friends, we need one another. When we read James, one of the big mistakes that's made in reading and teaching James is to view it as a command for me and a command for you. This is written to the church, to believers together. These are plural commands for how we're to live out life in community together. This is not just me and Jesus alone in this book of how my life is supposed to change. This is how our lives together are supposed to change. We need to be intentional like James in looking towards other believers, seeing what their needs are, and seeking to encourage them to follow Christ, to live out who they say they are, and to do so in God's strength. Because, friends, we have, like James points out, a sin nature. Every single one of us has desires in our heart that want to pull us away from God. We have a world around us that makes following God really hard. And there's a very real enemy who seeks to tempt us and lure us away by enticing those own desires. Friends, we desperately need community and need people to speak into our lives to help us rely on God's grace. In fact, this is such an emphasis of James. It's fascinating. If you turn to the very last part of James, the last two verses of James, James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, James has no conclusion. He has a very short intro that we just saw this morning, but he has no conclusion. He simply ends with this admonition. And his final thing he says in the book, there's no goodbye, there's no closing greetings. This is how the whole book ends, verse 19 and 20 of chapter 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's that important in James. So friends, as we read James, keep community in view. It's not just your or my speech problem or your or my temper problem or your or my generosity problem. This is us together seeking to together pursue Christ more and helping one another to do that. So I want to give you two closing questions this morning as we wrap up the intro to James. Number one is this. Who is speaking encouragement and challenge to you? Who is doing in your life today what James was seeking to do for these early Jewish Christians? Who in your life is pointing out sin, let me say, in love? 
different someone pointing out sin and someone pointing out sin and love. Who loves you enough to speak into your life and say, I'm really worried about this. Let's wrestle with this together. Who is coming alongside you because they care about you and are challenging you to see the sin in your heart and to help you walk out and find God's grace to overcome? Who is asking you the hard questions? Who is pointing you to God's grace? Friends, if you find that's lacking in your life, as we study James, let it be a week-by-week reminder to pray and ask God and say, God, give me friends, give me community that will speak into my life. And friends, pray for that. But let me also encourage you to take the first step. In our culture, people are very timid, even in the church, to want to speak into other people's lives for fear of being perceived as judgmental or whatever the reasons are. Perhaps you need to take that step and go to a brother or sister you trust and say, hey, I'm really struggling with whatever. Would you come alongside me and help me? And if it's a true friend, a true brother, sister in Christ, they're not going to turn their nose at you and look down on you. They're going to be glad to walk alongside you. They're probably going to want you to start asking questions of them because they need help also. So if that's lacking for you, begin to pray about that and begin to reach out to others as we study James to find people to speak encouragement and challenge to you. There's a second question, friends, because the church is not just for a place for us to come and be served. The church is a community where we serve one another. So my second question for you is this. Who are you seeking to encourage to rely on God's grace? Who are you seeking to encourage to rely on God's grace? Who are you, like James, intentionally pursuing? Who in this body has God put on your heart that you're burdened about? And like James, you want to see them run and find the grace of God. Because if that's not your experience or your practice to pursue people to help them find God's grace, as we study James, let that be a call to you as well. Would you pray for God to open your eyes to who in his sovereign plan has put into your life. And he's calling you to come alongside to as a friend to share a life with and as a friend to speak into their life. Friends, discipleship happens in relationship. Who's God calling you to spend time with intentionally to do what James did and that's to help point people to the grace of God. Friends, we need to intentionally encourage one another to live out our faith by relying on God's grace. Who's helping you do that and who are you helping do that? Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the power of your word. Lord, to realize that James was a man who you transformed greatly. Lord, and you set him apart and used him, Lord, as a leader of the early church. But you used him to record your sovereign will. Lord, that we might better know who you are and what it means to follow you. So, Lord, I pray for myself and these precious brothers and sisters this week, Lord, that you would burden our hearts with the same burden that James had. Would you help us see one another the way you want us to see one another? So, Lord, move beyond surface-level conversation and go deep into each other's lives, sharing life together in community, helping one another be reminded of your grace. Or we all know very clearly our own failures. God, we all see very clearly how, how frail and fragile our hearts are. And, Lord, how quickly we're lured away by the enemy and by the world as our fleshly desires want what is being enticing us and what we're being tempted with. Yet, Lord, in your kindness to us, Lord, you haven't made us to walk this journey alone. Lord, I see a room full of believers here who love you. And Lord, we have friends, we have community. Lord, would you take us deeper in that community? Or to have fun and to laugh and all those things that we enjoy doing, but to go deeper, Lord, in speaking into each other's lives. Lord, would you help us this week take those steps? Or would you remind us, as we're praying, as we're studying your word on our own this week, would you remind us of people that you're calling us, like James, to speak into their lives? And Lord, would you give each one of us friends who love us enough to do that. And what I pray is that happens, Lord, we would grow deeper in understanding your grace. And we find hope that comes from together walking this journey of faith together. And Lord, we will give you all the praise for what you do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?